0: Our sermon series this month is called Kingdom Craft, and the last series that we did, we've been looking at loving our neighbors throughout this year, and the last series we did focused on the way loving our neighbors transforms our own individual lives. We talked about eternal life and how God calls us to adopt a different way of living that is more outwardly focused than our normal way of living, and so it transforms us as individuals. But what we've moved into for this series is talking about how loving our neighbors is not just God's way of transforming individuals, but it's also God's way of changing the world. And that goes very contrary to our programming as modern Westerners, because modern Westerners are programmed to believe that if you want to change things, you should contact your local legislator. You should find some way to use the power of the state to change things. Like That is the designated organization that shapes our world, because you need power in order to really change things last week as we introduced this and we went from genesis 1 to 11 we talked about how deep in our programming as human beings we believe that the problem with the world is that there isn't enough to go around or there won't be enough to go around if we don't take control if we don't use power to make sure and so that's what we use our governments for is to make sure that there is enough to go around now we can't all agree on what enough to go around means but that's our, all our goals, even if we have different definitions. And so if, if scarcity is the term we used last week, is the problem that there isn't or may not be enough for everybody, most importantly for me, then we need to put in power structures to control people, to control things, to make sure that I get enough. And you can see this in our own, the preamble to our own constitution, when it says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. And then it goes, in, goes on to design this authority that will govern the land and go into exactly what the structures will look like, and there will be an executive branch, and a legislative branch, and a judicial branch, and these will be their powers, because that structure is, in our mindset, what you need in order to um, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for common defense, promote general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, right? You have to control things, okay? And that's our mentality because we assume that the problem is there isn't enough to go around. Now, last week, what we talked about is that we get into problems when you then go to the Bible and try and ask the Bible, well, how should we, how should we do this thing? Like, uh, using the power of the state to fix things is called statecraft. We say, well, how should we practice statecraft? Let's get that from the Bible. And the problem is that we, all, we come up with all these different answers for what that looks like, mainly, in my opinion, because the Bible is not actually there to teach us about statecraft. Because the Bible doesn't share the same assumptions. What we talked about last week is the Bible does not agree that there isn't enough to go around. The Bible actually teaches us, and God is constantly telling his people that There is, that God is in control and that God is generous, that God is gracious, and so we don't need to worry. What the Bible actually teaches us is that the root problem isn't scarcity, the root problem is anxiety. It's this fear that we have that no matter what God may tell us, we don't trust that there's enough. And that's why we hoard, that's why we steal, that's why we hurt each other, that's why we do all of these terrible things that we do to each other, because we don't trust that there will be enough unless I'm in control of who gets what. And so what that tells us, if the Bible's perspective is correct, and I believe it is, that the problem is anxiety rather than scarcity, then these structures that we create through the Constitution, they're helpful because they can restrain our anxiety, but they're never ultimately going to fix the problem. Because the problem is our anxiety. The problem is the fact that we do not have faith that God really is in control and that He's controlling things to our good. And so, what needs to happen in order to transform things is we need to learn to live on faith. So, last week we went from Genesis 1 to 11. This week we are moving into the next stage in this story, which is we're going to look at the law of Moses. Because what happens is, in the midst of people's continued failure to trust God, God calls Abraham and he says, I'm gonna send you to a land where you have you don't own anything, you don't know anybody, you don't have any relatives, and you're just gonna wander around there and I'm gonna take care of you. Not only am I gonna take care of you, I'm gonna bless everybody through you. It's gonna flow out of you. You're not gonna you're not gonna to starve to death, or you know, you're actually I'm actually gonna make you a blessing. You don't have to do anything, just go trust me. And his family does that with as we've seen through our, that sermon series, that it's, you know, mixed success. But they do that for generations until they end up in, in Egypt and they are enslaved by the Egyptians. God rescues them out of slavery when there are enough people to be a whole nation. And he calls them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is probably the most misunderstood part of the Bible these days. Because typically, our, the way we interpret it is that it is a moral law, or how to get to heaven. And that is not what the law of Moses is about. It never once talks about earning your way to heaven or, or eternal salvation at all. The law of Moses is a law to govern a nation. And what we're going to look at today is that that law has a purpose. It is there to create a particular kind of nation that will make a point to the world. And one of those points is the fact that you can, a nation can live on faith rather than anxiety, and survive. That a nation that is sponsored by God can actually flourish uh, without being anxious and without desperately being in control. It's meant to prove to this humanity that has been incapable of trusting in God that trusting in God really does work. Now, ultimately, the Israelites are not going to be any better at trusting God than anybody else. But the system that God gives them, if it were followed, it would teach them that. And ultimately, someone else is going to have to come, we're going to talk about it in two weeks, to, to actually achieve that. But as we look at the law of Moses, I want us to look at it kind of like a constitution and ask, what kind of nation would this system of laws create if it were actually practiced? What I'm going to tell you is that the law of Moses, when it's practiced, it creates patterns. Patterns of behavior in people that would have formed them in certain ways. It would have made them into certain kinds of people, which is the goal, the stated goal of the law. It will say throughout that it is trying to, the law is meant to create a certain kind of people who resemble God. And the first type of pattern that we're going to look at is the fact that the law of Moses creates patterns of faith instead of anxiety. That as you practice the law of Moses, if you practice it accurately, it will force you to let go of the things that we do that help our anxiety, and it will force you to, act, to just step out in faith and trust that God is going to do what he said he would do. For instance, when you read the Constitution, it is almost entirely about structuring the central organs of power, right? It's all about defining the power of the, legend, of the Congress and the president and the judiciary. It's all about who's in charge and how much power they have. The interesting thing about the law of Moses, the law of Moses has no central authority to keep the peace. It doesn't do any of that structuring authority business. There is one passage, Deuteronomy 17, that tells them, if you decide to have a king, this is what the king should do but that's the only time it ever talks about having one person in charge or even one group in charge. Now, there are different types of leaders in the law of Moses. There are judges and elders and prophets and priests. Interesting thing is the priest is the only office that's actually created by the law of Moses. The Israelites just already had elders and judges, and God just tells them what to do, how to behave. God's not concerned with having the exact right authority structure, and he doesn't He doesn't give them a central authority that can control the nation and create order because there is a central place of control. See, that's what we typically want, is we want someone to take control and establish order because we don't like things being out of our control. The law of Moses does not have that at all. That's why you'll notice there's no scripture passages to back this up because there are no passages in the Bible, in the law of Moses, that say... This is who has authority over that, and this is who is in charge you answer to. Like Moses and Joshua, the roles that they play are not in the law of Moses. God just says, all right, this guy's in charge, listen to him. But it's not like an official position. And when Joshua dies, they just go on living as tribes without any organized authority. Not because they don't care about keeping the peace, but because God is sufficient to keep the peace. In fact, later on, next week, we'll talk about when they ask for a king. And God says, they've rejected me as king because ultimately what happens is they don't trust God to keep the peace anymore. We want a guy in charge. We want one person in charge. But the law of Moses is not designed that way. They're supposed to risk flourishing without somebody in charge. Another thing that's interesting, we typically rely on, in order to keep the peace and keep order, we rely on two things. We rely on centralized authority and we rely on military, the force, you know, the use of force. The Law of Moses had no standing army to defend them from enemies. There were no professional soldiers in Israel under the Law of Moses. Now again, this is something they would develop later. But under the Law of Moses, they didn't use an army. They used militia. They just called out the farmers with their pitchforks to make an army. And there were all these rules about how to conduct warfare, but they are the most countercultural rules of warfare you have ever seen. Like, if you want to see a part of the Bible that makes absolutely no sense tactically, read the way they're supposed to fight a battle. For instance, when they get everybody, they muster everybody out, Okay, they've got all the farmers with their pitchforks and their shears and stuff lined up, and then this is what they are ordered to do. The officers shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officers shall add, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. It's a very interesting approach to the military, right? Because normally, normally what we say is, if the government says you're drafted, you go. And if you don't go, you get arrested. If you go and you don't fight, you get shot, right? Because we need every soldier we can get because we are in a fight for our lives, for our very existence. Everything is at stake every time we go to war. And so we need every person we can. There are no good excuses to get out of it. The pressure is so high that in times like World War II, like it was shameful not to make it. Even if you were, you were disqualified by a legitimate medical thing, people hated that because it was expected. We needed every person to go, right? And when you're in, they don't take excuses. They're, they're not great at doctor's notes in the military, right? Like they need everybody because ultimately it's that is the mentality. When you go into warfare, you're kind of rolling the dice and you need every soldier you can. There's an anxiety Mentality that necessarily goes with the military. Now imagine how different the feel of the military would be if the, if the, you know, the drill sergeant shows up and says, Hey, any of you guys engaged? You don't want to die before you get married. Go home, marry the girl, right? What are you doing here? No, don't worry about us. You go, Oh, you planted a field and you haven't actually gotten the crops. Go home, bring in the crops. We don't need, you're fine, right? Like they're looking for excuses to send people. Anybody, anybody scared? Anybody a bit nervous? We don't want you to make the others nervous. Just go home. It'll be fine. Like, it's an entirely different feel to a military, right? What does it tell you? <clears throat> it tells you that they're not particularly worried, right? A commander who says that is not particularly worried about how many soldiers he brings into battle. The whole, if you look at all the rules about warfare that they're supposed to follow, it makes the point that the soldiers are not the ones who are going to win the battle. God's going to win the battle. And in fact, so that's, if you know the story of Gideon, how God whittles him down to just 300 guys, that's not actually that unusual, apparently. Like every time they went into battle, they were supposed to do something like that, like just whittle it down. Only the people who are committed and ready and want to go will go. It doesn't matter how many we bring because God's the one who's going to fight, right? Like we're just extras. And so that's also why it was considered sinful for a king to have a census, Because you're not supposed to make war based on whether you can win the battle or how many soldiers you have. You're supposed to make war based on whether it's right and whether God will be with you. Because if God is with you, then then it doesn't matter how many soldiers you have. And if God's not with you, it doesn't matter how many soldiers you have. He's not going to give you a victory. So they weren't supposed to trust in their military because they didn't have one. They just called out the farmers and just a few of them went into battle and God won. Lastly, the last thing that we rely on to be in control of, um, of our lives and of our resources is work. Right? We, like, we, like to be, we feel like we're in control of our lives when, when there's somebody in charge, when there are guns or weapons defending order, and when I'm working to achieve what I want. Right? I, can, I know I can get enough money if I work hard enough. I can get the things that I need to make me feel secure if I'm working and I keep at it. right? So naturally, the law of Moses required the entire nation to regularly rest from work. Required. Now, something. uh, Let me read you the command for the for Sabbath. I want you to notice something important. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male servant or female servant nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town. Now, the way we practice Sabbath today is not Sabbath. If you take a personal break one day a week, that's good. That's healthy. I'm glad you do that. Not Old Testament Sabbath. Okay? Remember back in the days when the whole town shut down on Sundays? That's closer to actual Old Testament Sabbath. Because notice, Old Testament Sabbath is not just for you. It's for you and everyone who lives with you and everyone who works for you and all the animals. Your, like The entire economy shuts down at the same time on the same day. I worked in retail for a long time. My job was to work on other people's Sabbaths so they could spend money. Right? That our economy is based very much on people taking a Sabbath and spending money on that Sabbath, especially if you work in restaurants, right? That's, then you're all about working when other people are off. So you can make money off of their Sabbath. That's not Old Testament Sabbath. Everything shuts down one day a week. And then there's seven extra festivals a year. And then something mind-bogglingly crazy. When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired workers and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. So once every seven years, they take, the entire country takes a break from farming. Nobody farms. There are people who practice this today. There are Jews who will practice this today, but they'll do it one field at a time. This isn't, in the Bible, it's not one field at a time. It's not even one farmer at a time. It's the same year for everybody. The entire thing shuts down. Can you imagine how hard that would be to do? To just trust. Because what happens is you're not allowed to harvest, so your crops are going to grow back wild, and you can go out and you can pick grain, and you can pick grapes, and you can... Get the stuff you need for that day, but you're supposed to, but they basically become community land, right? Like, so you're out there next to your farm animals, next to your servants, next to the deer, because you all get to pull from the land, right? You have to trust that that is going to sustain you for a year. Then every seven years, you take an extra year called the Jubilee off and do the same thing again. Now, think about what would happen to a nation that did this and God didn't show up? How quickly would they just fall apart, right? Like your risk, this is why it turns out the Israelites never actually practiced this. Never once have they successfully uh, kept up with a Sabbath year. Because if God doesn't show up, everything falls apart, right? You're just destitute, poverty-stricken, starving to death. It's horrible. But if God does show up, if you do make it, it must be because God showed up, right? And imagine... How this would form people if every week and seven times a year and one year out of every seven, they were taking these breaks from working and everything was OK. Anybody feel like if you stop working, the world falls apart? Or at least your world falls apart? I feel that way. And it turns out this is just regular proof to people that it is not our work that sustains the world, it's God's grace. And so as people live out this law, what they're learning is it's not because we have a strong central government. It's not because we have the greatest military. It's not because we work really hard. It's because of God that we have what we have and that we're sustained in this world. And can you see how that would take you away from anxiety and into faith? Every time that that system got tested and God showed up makes it a little bit easier to be faithful It trains you a little further out of your anxiety. Can you see how the law of Moses would set these patterns in people if if you followed it? Now, you have to have some faith to start out, even to try it, but it would make it easier as you go along because every Sabbath, every Sabbath year especially, every time someone invades and tries to defeat you in battle, every time you get a little bit more proof that God really does keep his promises. So that's the first pattern that the law of Moses is supposed to set. But there's danger in that pattern. If, you, if all you learn is, well, God's going to back me up no matter what, then the danger is you say, well, then I can do anything I want. Right? Then it doesn't matter. I don't, I mean, God's going to take care of me, so I can do anything I want and get away with it, which is actually exactly what the Israelites end up doing. When Jeremiah comes into the temple and says, you've made my temple a den of robbers, that's what he's talking about, that they go out and do whatever they want, and then they come into the temple and say, we'll be fine because God takes care of us that's not what the law is training us to do. The law does not train Israel that you can do whatever you want as long as as God's taking care of you. The second step is that the law of Moses created patterns of generosity instead of selfishness. Because if you really live out this idea that God's generosity is what sustains us, then that frees you up to be generous with other people. Because that impulse we have to hoard to hold on to things, to not share, to hold on to more than we need is, well, I might need it someday, right? We're, it's an anxious mindset that says that I'm going to need this and I don't trust that if I give it up, there will still be enough. So I'm gonna hold on to what I have. And Jesus, what the law teaches us, what God is telling us is that, no, if I'm caring for you, if I'm providing for you, then you don't need to hoard anything and you can be generous the same way I'm being generous. So for instance, the law of Moses taught Israelites to share their resources. An interesting thing about the Sabbath commands, the Sabbath commands, and actually all of the Ten Commandments, are they're for all of Israel, but they are phrased to be directed at the heads of households. Their strongest emphasis is on the heads of household who are responsible for others. Notice how it talks about the, uh, keeping the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male and female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town. Now this is for everybody, but it's primarily aimed at someone who has sons and daughters, servants, animals, and influence in their town, right? Because what it's saying is it's really easy for rich people to take a break. It's really easy for the owner of the business to take a day off, Right? But the command is, you take a break, and everyone in your home and everyone who works for you gets the same break. Even the animals get a break. Now, it's funny, because what ended up happening is that later on, Jews would develop this system. There's actually, I forget what the word is, but there is a word for a Gentile that you hire to work for you on the Sabbath. Which is not the point, right? Remember, Sabbath is supposed to be shared with everybody, So the idea is everyone gets a break, not just the people who own the resources, not just the people who are rich and can pay other people to work for them. You're not even supposed to let people work for you. Everyone gets the break. It also says when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it to the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains to the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Now notice, this is a law. But can you see how it it doesn't really seem like the the way we would write a law where you could really enforce it, right? Like, you wouldn't have an inspector. It would be hard for an inspector to go in and verify. Now, oh, that counts as going back. No, that, that last beat, that was an, you waited too long. That counts as a new, a new going over your tree. Like it's, it's not so much about strict rules as it is a mentality, All right? That the law is teaching them, don't be desperate to get every single bit of your harvest into your own pockets. Don't approach it anxiously. Go through with the first swipe and take what you get and the rest, leave it for other people. Because what I give to you isn't just for you. I give to you for the community. And so the idea is you don't have to be desperate to get everything because you know that God's going to make sure you have enough. And you let others take what else is there. This is something that they continue to practice. When Casey and I lived in Willow County, there was a farming family in the church who sold grain to a a kosher bakery in New York, and they would send out rabbis to ride with them in the combines to make sure that they followed the rules, and they had to leave the edges of the field, and so they would actually, like, reach over and grab the steering wheel and make sure they left enough, right? Right? And if I remember correctly, there's there's nobody gleaning in Willow, Canada, right? Like no poor people were gonna go out and start picking the leftover grain. I think they went back over it again and donated that grain to a cause, something like that. They still made sure that it went to other people. But the idea is you can see how it would train people out of an anxious mindset and instead put them in a mindset of being generous with others. Because if you realize that, hey, I've never actually gotten every single bit of my harvest and I've done okay. And I've seen the people who have been able to eat because of the stuff that was left behind. Maybe God does, does really take care of us. Maybe I should, should be doing that. Maybe I should be providing for others. On another level, we see um, the law of Moses taught Israelites to release each other from debt. Debt is an amazing piece of leverage, whether it's monetary debt or like when, when um, someone is wrong to you and you have leverage over them. Like it's, it's powerful. It's powerful. It's also mixed with, it's a very anxious thing because you've got money that you don't control and you need it back. And so debt can be a very powerful dynamic in our communities. And it's a very interesting thing about debt in the law of Moses. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every debtor shall cancel any loan they may have to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Every seven years, debts are canceled. be an interesting society to live in, wouldn't it? No 30-year mortgages, right? Imagine living in a society where your loans are forgiven on a seven-year. Now, there's two ways that could go. On the one hand, people could be really miserly and just say, fine, I'm not gonna loan money. Um, On the other hand, they could be generous, and what ends up happening is a few times you forgive a loan, and you're like, man, I was really counting on that money. Now it's gone, and the world doesn't end. It doesn't mean that God's going to magically put that amount in your bank account so you can still buy the speedboat you were going to buy with that money. But what it means is, hey, you're still here and you're still on God's plan and the world didn't end. Maybe you're finding out the world didn't end when I didn't get my speedboat. But the point is that, that as you lose that money and you see the difference it makes to that person who is, no, who is freed from debt, you realize, oh, maybe there is more to life than being in control of the money. The same principle is at work in uh, this law. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. So there's two ways you got slaves back then. One is through battle with another country, and the other is debt slavery. So if it's Israelites owning other Israelites, this is debt slavery, which basically means somebody went so far into debt that the only thing they had left to sell to pay off the debt was their own labor. So this is really an extension of the debt question. And notice it says every seven years, you free your slaves. You free your Israelite slaves. But you don't just release them out onto the street to fend for themselves. Right, You're supposed to provide for them. You're supposed to set them up. And notice the language that's used here. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Supply them liberally. This person who was your slave, you're not going to release them to be destitute on the street. You're going to release them, and you're actually going to send them with, even though this person owed you money when you bought them. You're going to send them away, and you're going to set them up in their new life. And it's grounded in God's generosity. Finally, it says, Consecrate the 50th year. So you count after seven Sabbath years, that's 49 years, you take the 50th year, you consecrate it, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. So the jubilee here, you do the same thing again. That means two years in a row, no farming. But also, notice what it said, everybody goes back to their land. So when God brought them into the land, God said, I own the land. I'm the landlord. I will distribute the land. And he distributes the land. Okay? So the He is, God has given you the land. The Israelites only lease it. And they parsed it out by family. Now, under the law of Moses, it's not a utopian idea where nobody ever goes nobody ever loses money or everything's, right? Like people would, circumstances would still happen. There would be people who had to sell land and a neighbor would buy the land to bail them out of debt. Now this person has two fields, that person has none. You let that go long enough, there will be some people, that, now that person with two fields has more resources to buy other fields and eventually you get a landed upper class and a landless poor class. Except in the law of Moses, every 50 years, you have to give all the land back. So if your dad made some bad investments, and lost the family farm, then when Jubilee comes around, you get the farm back. Now this isn't, some people will look to the Bible for the roots of capitalism or communism or all the isms, the systems that we create. That's not what this is because it's ultimately rooted in God's plan and the fact that God is the owner of the land. And it still allows for life to happen. But the idea is that we just don't leave people in the circumstances of life. That we are trained not to hold on to the resources that we're able to hoard, but that we're able to release the land and give it back. All of the, remember, there's no central government to enforce this either. This is something that people do because they're being formed to look like God. So in the 50th year, that person who's amassed all this land, that land baron, is to give it all back and go back to having the same amount as everybody else. And then you don't end up with a society of this wealthy landed class that's generationally wealthy and a landless lower class that is generationally impoverished. The last thing that we see that we're going to look at in the patterns that the Law of Moses gives us is uh, it addresses the way people behave toward each other in, um, in situations of power, right? Because typically what we will do... It, crime typically comes, and like things like lying and cheating and stealing, they come from the fact that we don't trust the system to give us what we want. So either we want more than is fair, or we don't trust the system to give us what is fair, or both, and so we take matters into our own hands, and we work the system, and we lie under oath, or we steal from somebody, or or we do something that's all motivated out of that anxiety mindset, right? But God calls us to trust in the way he is organizing the world, and so But when we do that, when we're formed in that way, the law of Moses, it taught them to be just and compassionate with each other. That whole motive for being unjust, for lying, cheating, and stealing, should be taken away. So, in Leviticus it says, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. It would be more accurate to translate that as, You are holy because I am holy. Because the word holy, it means set aside, but it really means set aside as a representative of God. So, for instance, if you know Greek mythology, Zeus is the head god, and Zeus has holy objects. Uh, The lightning bolt and the eagle are holy objects for Zeus. And when you saw those symbols, you knew that Zeus was being invoked. And if you knew his symbols, they also tell you a little bit about the kind of god that Zeus is. Zeus is an authoritative, strike-you-down-if-you-cross-him kind of guy. Um, that's what his symbols tell you, right? When God says, you are holy, he's saying, you are my people, you represent me. You're one of my holy objects, right? God is the, when we say God is the God of Israel, he's the God of Israel the same way Zeus is the God of thunder, or, or Thor is the God of thunder, right? Like that's what that God is associated with. That's what they do. That's who they are. It's like when I worked for Best Buy, I put on a blue polo and a name tag, and that told people that I was holy to Best Buy. I represent Best Buy. People are going to judge Best Buy by what I do because I'm an official representative. Okay? That's what being holy means. So what does it look like to be an official representative of the God of Israel? Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive anyone. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not rebuke your neighbor or rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice what it looks like to represent God. If we are not motivated by anxiety, but if we trust in God's grace, then we never have a reason to be unjust, to be dishonest, to undermine our integrity, to victimize others, Too often as Christians, we accept the logic that the uh, end justifies the means. But if we say that the end justifies the means, and so we can do bad things or put up with bad things to accomplish good things, then what we're saying is Jesus hasn't already accomplished the ends. But he has. And God provides for what we need. God has accomplished the ends. And so if we trust in the grace of God, then that means that there are no immoral means that can be justified by the ends. It isn't up to us to to accomplish God's plan by any means necessary. We're supposed to maintain our integrity. Remember, when God talks to Cain, as Cain is tempted to kill his brother, and God says, don't worry about Cain. Just worry about doing what is right. You don't have to be better than. You don't have to beat anyone. Just do what is right. That's the only thing I put in front of you. It is completely irrelevant to you what happens to Abel because I've tasked you to do what is right and I will take care of everything else. And Cain didn't trust that because Cain needed to win and he murdered his brother over it. What the law of Moses teaches us is if we trust God, if we genuinely, genuinely trust God, then we will never adopt immoral means. We will never lie, cheat, and steal to accomplish something that we think is good. So that's your big red flag. If, if following God means doing something immoral, doing something he's told you not to do, then there's probably some kind of problem in the logic. There's some error in there. Because that's not how God works. God is not desperate enough to ask us to do something wrong to accomplish something right. Now as we move into the New Testament, the question is, what does the law have to do with us as Christians? And Jesus says something that can seem really puzzling about his relationship to the law. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what does it mean for him to fulfill them? Well, that, law, that word in Greek literally means fill full, right? It means fill up the law, complete the law. And if we remember that the law is not a system of... Of things you have to do to get into heaven, but it is a system that God created to create a certain kind of people and train them to live a certain way, then we can see how Jesus would fulfill the law and the prophets, because Jesus came to actually create a community and enable people to be what the law was supposed to train them to be. Because ultimately, no training can overcome our sinful, anxious natures. And so Jesus came to fulfill the law by making it possible for us to be the kind of people that God has called us to be from day one. He's saying essentially the same thing when he launches his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, and he goes into a, to a, a synagogue, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah so he can preach. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, "...the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is that scripture talking about? What is good news to the poor? Freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. What is the year of the Lord's favor? It's the Jubilee year. Now, I'm not saying that that summarizes all that it means, but that is what, that is what the, God put into the law of Moses to teach us about his design for the world and his plan for humanity was this jubilee here. It summarizes what that's supposed to look like. In the jubilee, or that's when you forgive debts. That's when you give back land. That's when you free slaves. That's when the generosity of God is most shared among his people. And Jesus says, I came to finally bring that because the Israelites never once practiced it. They never one time practiced came through on that command. And Jesus says, I'm here to make that community actually happen. So Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets, and what that means is to achieve the vision of the law of Moses, to actually bring into reality what the law of Moses was always pointing us toward. What does that look like? Well, that's going to be a whole other sermon in two weeks. We're going to talk about the ministry of Jesus. But I will give you one, one point this is a passage from when Jesus' disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, which, again, is that competitive, anxious mindset, right? Like, I got to be first. I'm not as concerned about being good as being first. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus came to save the world, he did not come as a king with an army. He did not come to control people. He didn't come to save us from scarcity. He came to serve us and to sacrifice for us. Because scarcity is not the problem. Anxiety is the problem. Lack of trust in God is the problem. Rejection of his generosity is the problem. And if that's the problem, then when Jesus comes and instead of conquering, he lets himself be killed and is brought back to life, what that tells people is that Jesus is not concerned about scarcity. Right? Jesus is the complete opposite of that mindset. And the fact that he is willing to trust God all the way to the cross, and then he's vindicated by God, is the ultimate way for God to say, yeah, the problem's not scarcity, the problem is humanity. And then as we, as people, if we follow his example, and every time we go out into the world and we, we live that way, we're showing people, you know what, we don't believe that the problem is scarcity either. Right? We trust God, and we're actually going to live that way. We trust him so much that it will affect the way we spend our money. It will affect the way we spend our time. We will be generous with our neighbors in whatever way that looks like because we trust that God's in control. Jesus fulfilled the law by building a community of service and sacrifice. And as we go out into our community and behave differently, behave counter to the culture that says that we have to be afraid of everything and concerned about everything and scrabble for every bit, as we behave in the opposite way, we send a powerful signal to people that there is another better way to live. And as God shows up in that, he proves that that way is true. That his son really is alive, and that the way of Jesus really has been vindicated. And that's why loving our neighbors can have a much more profound effect than we think. Because it's not just about the immediate thing that you do for your neighbor, but it is the lifestyle, it is the trust that you have communicated to them, and the fact that you did this because you trust that God's going to take care of it. Again, which doesn't mean every dollar you spend, he's going to back fund into your into your bank account, but that you can invest your life and your resources according to his plan, and it will work out according to his plan. Last week, I announced to you a new uh, program that we're gonna do over the summer that is gonna be an extension of this, and I wanna give you another chance to sign up for this. We are not going to be doing Sunday school throughout the summer, but what we are going to be doing is we're going to be giving you an opportunity to practice this in a tangible way, this idea that loving each other and loving our neighbors has a real practical change in our world. It is a way of transforming our communities. And so what we're doing is dinner groups. So we're going to have people sign up for this, and we're going to put you together in groups, and you're going to schedule dinner with each other throughout the summer. You're just gonna get together and you're gonna have dinner, you're gonna get to know each other and hopefully it'll be the kind of thing that you may be able to invite a neighbor to. But ultimately, the goal is to practice this kind of community that we can be, this community of generosity and openness because you're not gonna choose the people on your list and they may be from a completely different stage of life, a completely different um, mindset and we, as we learn to love people regardless of what they can do for us and regardless of what we have in common, we learn to be more like Jesus. So if you would like to be a part of one of those, please grab the grow card that is in the seat back in front of you and just put in your name, an email address, or phone number, and then you can check the box at the bottom and put dinner group and just leave that on your seat and we'll pick it up afterward. And we invite the praise team to come up. As we get ready for our last song, I want you to consider what is God leading you to do in response to what he said to you today? I want you to examine your heart and see the ways in which you have been dominated by this scarcity mentality, this this lack of trust in God's generosity. And what are the ways that you can reach out to others? First of all, if you have not accepted God's grace, if you have not given your life to Jesus, today is the day to do it. So we encourage you to come forward as we sing or to talk to a minister. If you're online, get a hold of the church or a Christian that you know and trust. Maybe you are in a place where you realize you believe in Jesus and you've given your life to him, but you haven't really committed to living in his grace, and you need to learn what that looks like. Well, that Grow card that I told you about has a bunch of boxes on it. You can check any one of those if you want to be a part of one of our groups where we get together and we encourage each other. You can also grab your Connect card if you'd like to take a membership class and find out about being more connected with the congregation. And finally, there's a serve card if you'd like some tangible ways to give back through the church, either giving to others in the church or giving to our community. We have a lot of different opportunities for you to serve. So I encourage you during this last song to really think about how God is calling you to live in his generosity and say yes to what he's putting on your heart. Let's stand and sing.